0: Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Cat. Mark 11, verse 13. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den." And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeing how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered uh, withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. Jesus was leaving Jerusalem, going into Jerusalem, and he saw a fig tree, One of the characteristics of a fig tree is is that oftentimes it can produce fruit before there is foliage. Jesus, seeing the foliage, assumed that there would be fruit on it. It was supposed to have fruit. He was expecting it to have fruit. And yet the Lord goes and finds none, and he pronounces a death sentence on this fig tree. He is illustrating in this beginning of this passage hypocrisy, something that appears to be one way and is yet another. He is trying to illustrate, as you read this in the context of the the temple and the Lord's house being a house of prayer, he is trying to symbolize for them the characteristics of hypocrisy. And I think there are three that are symbolized in this fig tree. You see, he did not curse the fig tree for being barren. He cursed the fig tree for bearing a false witness. It was supposed to have figs, and so the first thing is that hypocrisy is attractive. The tree looked like it would offer shade. It looked like it would offer fruit, and it appeared attractive. It appeared to be just what the master needed it to be at the moment. Hypocrisy is attractive. It always looks good. It always provides shade, but no substance. Secondly, hypocrisy is barren is barren. It promises what it cannot produce. When you and I live hypocritical lives, we promise something to people that we cannot produce because we are in fact being hypocritical in what we say. Thirdly, hypocrisy is deceptive, for it paints a picture that hides the reality. The reality was that this fig tree could not produce what it was supposed to produce. And so Jesus cursed it, and he was just in doing so. Now, this is the last miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Eighteen miracles occur in the Gospel of Mark. This is the last one. It is the only destructive miracle in the ministry of Jesus. He uses this as a graphic reminder. He doesn't want his disciples to miss the point of hypocrisy. They have seen him in his conflict, and his... Uh, run-ins with the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, and rather than speaking to them a sermon that they would probably forget, we forget 90% of what we hear, rather than speaking a sermon, he illustrates it by cursing the fig tree. By casting on that fig tree that it would never bear fruit again, Jesus is giving them a deliberate act that would leave on them a lasting impression. He was giving them a visual reminder of how seriously God takes hypocrisy. I guarantee you they never got over it. Jesus is trying to show them that false teaching and pretense and false professions will wither under the judgment of the Master that when it comes under the eyes of Jesus and when God begins to judge the motives of men's heart, there will be many who will stand before Jesus and they will have all kinds of religious foliage, but they will have no spiritual fruit. There will not be anything in their life that bears witness to the fruit of the Spirit and the overflowing of the production of the life of Jesus Christ in our lives. All foliage, no fruit. It tells me that Jesus has very little patience. With hypocrisy, that he takes it very seriously. They were passing by and, and Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold the fig tree which you cursed has withered. I, I I love the Bible for what it says and for what it says when you read it. Lord, uh, teacher, you told that fig tree not to bear any more fruit, and, and it did what you told it to do. Peter was amazed. After three years. One week away from the death of Jesus Christ, it still blew Peter's mind that here was a fig tree and and Jesus said, I'm going to curse that fig tree and it's never going to bear fruit again. He comes by the next morning and that fig tree is withered from the roots up. Everything's dead. It was alive 24 hours ago, now it's dead. And he's amazed, he's surprised. How in the world did that happen? Lord, you you said that that fig tree shouldn't bear any more fruit. We came by this morning, there wasn't any more fruit. Now I want you to notice in verse 22, Jesus answered them and said, Have faith in God. He didn't answer Simon Peter. He didn't explain himself to Simon Peter. He merely stated the principle for living above hypocrisy. If you and I want to know how we are supposed to live so that we can avoid living in hypocrisy... So we can keep from falling into the trap of the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. It is summed up in four words, have faith in God. Not in religion, not in the church. Now you remember that he comes out of this, he's coming out of the time when he said that my house shall be called a house of prayer. I think that Mark wedges these events together like this because he's trying to show us that the scribes and the priests and the chief priests were all like the fig tree. They had all kinds of religious foliage, but they were producing no fruit. They had all the scriptures that told them what Messiah would look like and how they could identify Messiah, and yet Messiah stood in front of them and they wanted to kill him. They had their prayers down. They prayed three times a day. They came to the temple, and they did all their business in the temple. They had their sacrificial system down. They had everything down, religion down to a fine science. But they were fruitless. They were not bearing spiritual fruit. Although all their ducks were in a row, they didn't have a clue about walking with God or recognizing the Messiah. And so Jesus uses this fig tree to illustrate something for the disciples. I think he's, he's trying to illustrate the fact that, that for the Pharisees and the scribes, there was no reality behind the ritual. And that happens so often in the Christian community. We go through the ritual of doing what we know we're supposed to do. We check all the boxes on our eight-point record system, on our envelopes, and we go through all the ritual, but the reality is gone. And we may even make a profession of fruitfulness, but there's no spiritual fruit in our lives. We may try to claim that we've got it all together, but we are, as Jude says in verse 12, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted a great old preacher of another time, who never minced any words. If you ever want to read a prophetic book, pick up a book by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill can peel the hide off a tree. He mixes no words. He made this statement about hypocrisy. He said, this go to church once a week and pay your tithes and sing in the choir Christianity is a farce. If that is the limit of our Christian service, and the extent of our passion. Now, how do you and I keep from being hypocrites? I mean, if if Jesus thought it important enough to give a visual, lasting illustration to his disciples about what they were not supposed to be, he also gave a word to them about what they were supposed to be. And we need to find out what it is. It is found in those words, have faith in God. Now, there are two things that are mentioned in this passage as you look at these verses. He talks about prayer, and he talks about faith. Isn't it funny how when we talk about the Christian life, we keep coming back to those two words? You know, you would think that we'd get a handle on that earlier. You would think after three years that Jesus wouldn't have to talk to his disciples about prayer and faith but he has to talk to them about it and we have to constantly remind ourselves that the issues of life boil down to faith and to prayer. Not vain repetition, not empty words, but faith and prayer. And so the first point is this. We must focus on God. If you're going to have faith in God, we must focus on God. That little phrase, have faith in God, literally means constantly trust God. Live in constant dependence on God. Have faith in God. Constantly trust and depend on God. That's what it means. You see, faith is no greater than its object. The object of your faith determines the extent of your faith. And faith is no greater than its object. And one of Satan's greatest attacks on the believer is to try to get us to doubt the power of God. Now, I'm going to tell you who, has, who believes more in this realm of faith and prayer than anybody else in this room tonight. It's the devil because he knows what it does to him. The devil suffers more when God's people walk in prayer and in faith than at any other time. And so he's going to fight us on it You've heard it a million times. If you've been in the church long, you've heard it. God, you know, gets people to praying and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on their knees. Why is that? Because Satan, more than any of us, understands the power of prayer. And Satan also suffers when God's people step out in faith because then he cannot get them to doubt the power of God. They have moved beyond him. They have not let him blindside them and he can't get them to doubt the power of God. And so Satan works on us and begins to plant questions in our mind like this. Why hasn't God answered? Why did God allow this to happen? Where was God when you needed him? All that praying and still no answer. You see, the reason he does that is very simple. If he can distort your image of God, If Satan can bring a distortion of your image of God, then he can detour your faith in God because your faith is no greater than its object. And if he gets you to doubt God and to question God and to disbelieve God or to in any way cast doubt on the ability of God to do something, if he can do that, then he can keep you from trusting God. So Jesus begins by talking about how you and I are to walk and live in a way that pleases God by saying, have faith in God. Focus on God. He didn't say, have faith in faith. He said, have faith in God. You see, faith in God is the great overarching principle of our lives. And faith has three stages. First of all, faith reckons. Faith reckons. Reckoning is an accounting term. Faith reckons. Secondly, faith rests. Faith rests in the promises of God. And once you've reckoned it to be so, once you've rested in the promises of God, then the third thing that happens is that faith risks. R-I-S-K-S. Faith will risk. And you only risk when you've reckoned it to be so and when you've rested in the promises of God. So first thing, focus on God. Secondly, we must face the mountains in faith. Notice what he says, verse 23. We must face the mountains in faith. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received, and they shall be granted you. Verses 23 and 24 represents a faith that will risk. You see, the mountains symbolize the immovable. The mountains symbolize things that are permanently established. How do you and I focus on God enough to the point where we produce out of our lives mountain-moving faith? Well, since you ask, it's found in another word, prayer. How do you and I come to the point of mountain-moving faith? How do we deal with the mountains and the obstacles in our lives? We do it by prayer. Andrew Murray said, Is it not proof that the Holy Spirit is to a great extent a stranger in the church when prayer for which God has made such provisions is regarded as a task and a burden. And doesn't this teach us to seek for the root, deep root of prayerlessness in our ignorance and disobedience to the divine instructor? Now, let me just make a couple of statements about prayer. First of all, prayer is thinking God's thoughts after him. Prayer is thinking God's thoughts after him. Prayer is not coming up with thoughts of our own. Prayer is thinking with the mind of Christ. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. Prayer is thinking God's thoughts after him. Secondly, prayer is telling God that we have every confidence in him. Prayer is telling God that we have every confidence in him And so that means that neglecting prayer is telling God we have every confidence in ourselves. That when we neglect to pray, we are in effect saying to God, we don't need you. We've got it all together. Our confidence is in ourselves and in our abilities. And so there's two little three-word phrases that I, I want you to write down if you would. First of all, so in prayer... The second phrase is reap in power. Sow in prayer, reap in power. If you want to live above the level of hypocrisy and if you want to deal with the mountains and the obstacles and the permanently established barriers in your life, then the first thing you've got to do is sow in prayer. Faith causes us to pray and prayer causes us to have faith. You see, you can't have one without the other. You cannot be a person of faith without prayer, and you can't be a person of prayer without coming to the conclusion that God can do anything. Uh, I've got a little sign up in my study that says, this is a HIM, H-I-M, possible situation. You know, you only got to uh, add the letter H to impossible, and it's HIM-possible. It's impossible with me, It's possible with him. How do we have mountain-moving faith? Now, when you and I pray, we pray in and through our hearts the burdens that God puts on us. Prayer is very simple and yet it's very complicated because when we're praying like we ought to be praying, we are simply finding out what is on God's heart and God puts it on our heart and then we take it back to God's heart. We're getting in on what God's in on. We're finding out what He wants. We're not trying to arrange His agenda. We're letting Him arrange our agenda. We're open to the Spirit. We're moving with the Spirit. And either you and I have the resources in Christ or we don't. Either prayer works or it doesn't. We either have what it takes... Either God has given us all the ammunition and equipment and resources we need to wage the war and to do battle and to walk in victory, or he hasn't. Now, once you've settled the issue in your heart that he has given you everything necessary for Christ's likeness, that done by faith then you can begin to pray and then you begin to pull out these key phrases in these three verses. Verse 22, the key phrase is have faith in God. Verse 23, does not doubt. Verse 24, pray, ask, believe. Not faith in faith, not even faith in prayer, but faith in God. And when you have faith in God, it leads us to where we do not doubt and then we are willing to pray and ask and believe. Now, what Jesus is talking about is not us working ourselves up to faith and to prayer. He's not talking about a psych job that we do on ourselves. You remember the weightlifters in the Olympics? You know, they stand there and they look at those weights and... And then they go to race and then it just makes, it hurts, just thinking about it, doesn't it? And then all of a sudden, they, See, some of us think prayers like that. We come up to our mountain and we go And then we put our shoulder down, and we're going to bowl over that mountain, boy. I mean, we're after it. And just about the time we think we get ourselves psyched up, we're like the guy who's trying out for karate and he convinces himself it won't hurt when I crack this block with my hand the first time. We we, we have gotten the idea that somehow in prayer we stand back and we get a running start and then we hope we clear the fence. That's not prayer. That's just well-wishing yourself into something. That's just positive thinking. We're, We're talking about a life that is so focused. Now catch me, get this. We're talking about a life that is so focused on the power of God that it does not separate the possible from the impossible. You see, if you and I are going to be what God wants us to be, And if we're going to deal with the obstacles in our lives and the mountains in our lives, then we've got to be so focused on God that from our perspective, there's no such thing as possible or impossible. With God, he can do anything. And you see, those words fall out of our mouths easily until we're put in a situation where we've got to ask God to do the impossible. And then we go and we ask all our friends to help us along because we may not have enough faith to do it. And so we kind of muster it up. But you see, it is focusing in. It is not wallowing in fear. It is not concentrating on the circumstances. It's concentrating on the Father. Now, that does not mean, when he says, do not doubt, that doesn't mean that doubts will never come. I've never met a person who I would consider a person of faith that hasn't had some doubts at times. It doesn't mean that doubts will not come. It means don't dwell on the doubts. I can tell you, you can ask God for some big things. Sometimes I ask God to do something. And in the middle of asking Him, I think, boy, I'm afraid I've put God up on the line this time. And, you know, it's only one second to go and this free throw wins the ball game and He may not come through. This may be His night to miss. You see, all of us are plagued with doubts. But the difference in the walk of faith is when the doubt comes, you don't dwell on the doubt. You refocus on God. You have faith in God. You don't dwell on your doubt. And so you, it's, he says, you say to this mountain, that's not a confession of faith in yourself. That's a confession of faith in God. It is being able to make a command based on your trust in God you say to this mountain. Now, if there's a statement, if you don't get anything else out of this message, I want you to get this statement because I, I think this sums up what he's trying to say in verse 22 and 23. When we focus on God, when we have faith in God, we consider the problem, but we never take the problem into consideration. You understand? We consider the problem, but we never take the problem into consideration. Yeah, I know that's a problem. Yeah, I know that's an obstacle. Yeah, I, I realize that that I realize that could happen, but have faith in God. I appreciate something one of our men said to me the other day. He said, preacher, he said, you keep telling us to walk by faith. Because most of us just won't try to figure it all out. You see, folks, you know who encourages you? i tell you who encourages me. It's people who tell me to not take all my problems into consideration but to trust God. And especially when they tell me that when I know they've trusted God in the midst of their problems. It's not that you and I don't consider the problem. I mean, if you have got a mountain standing in front of you, let me ask you something: How do you not consider the mountain? I mean, it's there. If you got a Mount Everest situation in front of you, you say, "Well, I'm just going to believe God that mountain's not there." Well, you can believe it all you want to, but you drive your truck into it. You know, it's going. I mean, you're going to be hurt. You can say all you want to say. No, nope, that's not there. It's not there, but it's there. You just don't take it into consideration. You just get your four-wheel drive out and maybe get a helicopter to take you over it. You don't take the problem into consideration. You see, words that we say are not prayer simply because we say them in church. That doesn't make it prayer. It is not prayer because we say them on our knees. We can say words without praying but we can also pray without saying any words. Paul talks about the groanings of our heart that we cannot utter or explain. You know what some of my best praying has been? I just throw my hands up and say, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask you for. I don't know how to approach you. And somehow in the miracle of God's work in our lives, his Holy Spirit says, well, Lord, he can't say it, but here's what he means. Here's what he's trying to tell you. Lord, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to ask. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know what your will is with this mountain. I, I don't know how to determine what it is. I, I don't know. I don't have any words. I'm frustrated. I, I can't put my thoughts together. And the Holy Spirit says, no, but I can't. I I know what you're asking for. You see, that's not taking the problem into consideration. It's acknowledging that you've got a problem, but you don't dwell on it. You know, I asked myself a question this week Did God somehow close up mountain moving faith with the disciples? Did He close it up with the early church? Did he close it up with Martin Luther and with Wesley? Did he close it up with the William Careys and the Bertha Smiths? Did God somehow close up shop after Spurgeon and D.L. Moody and men like that died? Is is God not as effective today as he was then? Or is it that we have fallen to such a subnormal level of Christian living that if we became normal that we would appear abnormal is it that we have so fallen short of understanding what it is to have faith in God and to be men and women of prayer that if we became that way we would look strange now let me say a word about saying to this mountain moving doesn't always mean removing Moving doesn't always mean removing. Now, if you watch that uh oh I'm going I'm fixing to go out and chase me a rabbit here. If you watch the guy on TV with the uh white hair that looks like it's been held together with epoxy cement and his wife who dresses like she went to the Charismatic Fredericks of Hollywood. They would tell you that if you have faith, you can move California to Maine. Brother, you can have all the faith you want to have. You can have the faith of every Christian that's ever lived. But I'm going to tell you something. California's going to stay right where it is until God knocks it off the face of the earth with an earthquake. And see, this... Verse and these principles in in this verse are very misused and misinterpreted and abused by the health and wealth people. I mean, you want to talk about a verse of Scripture that has been abused by a segment of what some call Christianity. This is it. This is a segment where they say, well, if you say to a mountain, God will move it out of your way. Everybody that has cancer that has enough faith God will take it away from them. Every prayer you pray, God's going to answer it just like you want it. You want a nicer car? Ask God for it. God will give it to you. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know anybody that loved God more than the Apostle Paul, and he begged God to take his thorn in the flesh away, and God didn't do it. He didn't remove it, but he moved it into perspective and said, Now, Paul, That thorn's going to stay there, son, and you're just going to have to live with it, but my grace is sufficient for you. Now, let me ask you something. Why in the name of all that is holy and sacred would God work on the health and wealth joy boy philosophy when his own son asked him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any way I can get out of going to the cross, would you please take this cup away from me? And God said, I can't do it. To his own son. And for his son to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I want to tell you something, folks. God didn't take the cross away from his son, and he's not going to take some of the crosses out of your life either. It's not all going to be easy. And I am worried about this as much as I am about anything because I see it perverting people. And then when I see things that happen in our lives that we cannot explain, that we cannot understand, and when mountains don't move like we want them to move, I find a segment of Christianity that blames us and looks at our loved ones and looks at those that are left behind and says, well, you just didn't love God enough and you didn't have enough faith or God would have done for you what he did for me. Folks, that's wrong. Sometimes God does move mountains, but sometimes he doesn't. Jesus said, say to this mountain, faith does not mean that God looks down and says, I didn't know that had slipped into your life. Well, bless your little pea-picking heart. Let me move that out of there and brush that aside. God is not surprised by the mountains and the troubles and the trials that come into our lives. They don't catch him off guard. And people misinterpret verse 24, Therefore I say to you all things for which you pray and ask believe that you have received them and they shall be granted you. Here's what they say. They say if you pray hard enough and if you pray long enough and if you really, 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 really believe God's going to come through and he's going to answer your prayers no matter what you ask God for. Now, folks, that is a lie. God won't do that. God's not going to give you whatever you ask for no matter what it is that you ask for. If you ask inconsistent with Scripture, inconsistent with the will of God and that which ultimately brings glory to God, God's not going to answer that. He's not going to change his mind to suit you. If he did... That would make God our servant and prayer our little bell that we ring to get him to come. And God's not going to be our bellboy. He's not going to do it. You say, well, I I love him. Why doesn't he move this mountain? I tell you, because prayer is not the manipulation of the Almighty. Verse 24, All things which you have prayed and asked believe. That's an heiress tense. What it means is simply this pray in such a way that you believe you have already received the answer that you are asking for. Pray in such a way that you believe you have already received the answer. Now, you say, Well, that that sounds like just what you said we weren't supposed to do. Oh, but you forget the context context is you pray and ask God to do anything in light of the faith that you have faith in God, not faith in Him doing what you want to do. Your faith is not in the answer. Your faith is in God. And so when you and I pray, we ask God to do things in light of the fact that He is sovereign, almighty God. And as Ron Dunn says, God does what he wants to do and he does a pretty good job of it. I don't always understand it. But I understand that verse 24 is in the context of focusing on the Father, not focusing on the answer. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, the ultimate reality for our life is not what we see. It's what we don't see. Now let me just give you a prime example. Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people have prayed this week for God to spare the life of Evan Carson. We got on our knees one night in a Bible conference and asked God to do that. God chose not to do that. Is he any less God? No. If Evan Carson could speak tonight, I'll tell you what he'd tell you. He's more God to him now than he's ever been. Did he take away our hurt? No. Did he move the mountain? No. But you and I only see what's right here. I wonder, because of a brief life dedicated to God, how many lives will be motivated and affected because of the life of Edmund Carson? You see, his life is multiplied now in the lives of others. And I don't understand how God does all of that. But I know this God wasn't any less God in saying no than he would have been if he had said yes. He's still God. And it still hurts. There's no way to get around those kind of things. The most often asked question of preachers is, why? Why would a loving God let this happen? You know, folks, I don't think you can ask God why in bad things if you don't ask him why in good things. I really don't think you can say to God, God, why did so-and-so get cancer? If you've never asked, God, why didn't I get cancer? You see, we always want to blame God or the devil. And to be honest with you, I think God and the devil both get blamed for a lot of things they don't have anything to do with. God has given man a free will. And if we choose to do those things that are unhealthy, then we may end up with some kind of health problem. It would be God's fault that we did it. It's that we're not disciplined enough to take care of ourselves. Jeff Hugel said, It is when men bow the knee and call upon God that in a sense they become as mighty as the Almighty. Do not misunderstand me. I am not being irreverent. I am only saying what he says in his holy word. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know not of. God says you pray and I will work. And if you ask in my name, I will do it. You see, when we have faith in God and when we pray, we link the impotence of man to the omnipotence of God. Now, I don't know what your mountain is. I know what mine is. I know exactly what mine is. And I've been staring that mountain in the face and I've been trying to ask God, God, I, I don't understand this. I wish you'd help me with this. But I realized, and I'm still working through it, I'm not there yet. I realized what I've been doing is I've been looking at the mountain and I hadn't been looking at the Father. Father. You find yourself doing that? Jesus didn't say, look at the mountain. He said, say to the mountain. Why do you say that to the mountain? You say it to the mountain because you have faith in God. God may not always remove your mountain, but he will move you into a position that you can live a victorious, faithful life facing your mountain. And the fact that we call it the victorious Christian life is, by its very nature implies that we have a struggle in our lives. And so I want to get to the third one, and let's do that very quickly. We must forgive others to have power in prayer and to live a life of faith. Verse 25. And Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, verses 25 and 26. Jesus mentions one primary soul condition for answering prayer. Forgive. That's the only condition that he mentions in this passage. So if you want to take it down to the bottom line, your right to pray and to ask God to deal with the mountains in your life is in direct proportion to your willingness to forgive. So let me ask some questions. And boy, if you weren't here for the message that Ron Dunn did on this, you ought to get it on tape when he talked about our attitudes as as believers. So let me just ask you a question. Is there anybody you haven't forgiven? Anything you just can't get over? Any grudge that you continue to bear and hold on to? Is there anybody that you want to turn and walk the other direction when you see them coming? Is there anyone that it just galls you that God hadn't played sick on them like you want him to? Jesus says, if you want to walk by faith and if you want to have power in prayer, brothers and sisters, you have got to forgive. It is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. He says, forgive. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Now, that brings us to something that I mentioned this morning briefly, and that is God has sovereignly allowed you and I to limit the level of our blessings. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you. You want to be forgiven? You've got to forgive. You want the blessings of God? You've got to bless the other people. We are blessed in the proportion that we bless. We are forgiven in proportion to how we forgive. Now, this is in the realm of prayer. Salvation, God takes all of our sins and washes them white as snow. But Jesus says, if you want power in prayer, you've got to forgive. And that is a present tense, but it doesn't mean one time. It means continual action, a lifestyle of forgiveness. That you and I live in the realm of forgiveness. And if there's anything that is an issue between you and a brother or sister in Christ, that ultimately becomes an issue between you and God. That's an old me. If there is anything that is an issue between you and a brother or a sister in Christ that you cannot forgive and you can't let go and you refuse to turn the other cheek, then my friend, God says when you stand to pray, God's not going to hear you and he's not going to forgive you. I wish he hadn't said that, but he did. So that tells me something about prayer as we wrap it up. I may not be judged so much on what I do as what I could have done if I had lived in a forgiving spirit. God may not so much judge me for what I do or how many mountains I moved. He may judge me for how many mountains that could have been moved if I would have forgiven, if I, the prayers that could have been prayed, the tears that could have been shed, the opportunities that were there potentially for me to do something significant for God if I had only forgiven. And I want to be honest with you. It does not take any intelligence at all to hold a grudge. I mean, a dog will hold a grudge against somebody that kicks it. It doesn't take any intelligence to hold a grudge. It doesn't take any intelligence to be unforgiving. But it takes all the grace that God can pour out on your life for you to turn your cheek the other way when somebody's offended you. And it takes all that we can get from God to say, Father, I forgive them. That's tough. And by the way, one little added word about this when he talks about forgiving our transgressions. And this is where I think we as parents and as good church people need to be very careful. One little last word. I believe what else it says is that if you are praying about something for your children, for your grandchildren, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your mom, for your dad, whatever, and God answers your prayer, Yet in your heart, you are unforgiving. You need to mark it down. It was never your prayer that he answered. It was the prayer of somebody who was walking in forgiveness. God never heard your prayer because he says if you want to have your mountains move, you're going to have one condition to praying that way. And that's forgiveness. I tell you, I see I see people and I meet people and I, I do revivals and somebody will say something to me and they say, Boy, I tell you what, that that person did me wrong. How long ago was that? It's fifteen years ago. I hate to tell them this. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But if God's answered anything they've been asking for in those fifteen years, it's been because somebody else has been praying. The same way, but their heart's been right. Now, could I give you one statement and then we're going to stand and pray? If you and I fail to forgive people, we will ultimately be buried under the mountain that we ask God to move. If we fail to forgive people, we will ultimately be buried under the mountain that we ask God to move. I want to tell you something, folks. I don't know anything anybody could do to me that would be so bad that I would want to lose my ability to get a hold of God over it. And believe me, I can say that out of experience because I have been so mad at some people in my life that I know what it's like for God not to answer any of my prayers. And I'm going to tell you something. That's the most hollow sound in the world. Trying to get a hold of God. And all the time, him whispering somebody's name in my ear that I needed to get something right with. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catch. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.